0: Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. My guest today is Dan Hurley, the head men's basketball coach at the University of Connecticut. If you watched last year's March Madness Tournament, then you know He's the guy that led the Huskies to win the NCAA title. And boy, it was a heck of a lot of fun to watch him and his team absolutely dominate that tournament. Now think about it. Here's this incredible coach who reached what's got to be the pinnacle of success for collegiate coaching. But you know what? When you listen to him, you would never know it. And you're about to hear there's a relentless drive and work ethic to the way that Dan leads, and it's a powerful reminder that no matter what level of success you're at now, you've always got to find a way to keep pushing yourself to the next level, and Dan's going to show you how it's done. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Dan Hurling. You're coming off of a 34-point win last night, which is nice. Uh, you know, what do you say to your team after that? And, you know, how do you keep them on edge a little bit?
1: Last night was uh, was probably one of the harshest critiques or one of the most disappointing locker room you know, postmortems that I could recall. We played so far below our championship standards in terms of uh, doing the hard things well on the court. Um you know, it was a window dressing score, but we were, uh, we didn't function very well as a team. So bad locker room.
0: You led uh, UConn, obviously, last year to the national championship. And can you tell us uh, a behind-the-scenes story from winning the title that, that most people haven't heard of?
1: <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, most people know I was wearing uh, the dragon underwear the whole tournament all the way to the championship. Um I would say um, being at the White House and maybe when the team leaves, you're with the president. You take a picture with the president, President Biden, which was you know super cool. And then uh, then the team goes um, into another room, I guess the whatever the media room, wherever they do their their, their press conferences. And I had about five minutes by myself with Joe Biden because me and him just kind of walked into that room and then the ceremony started. So I had five minutes with Joe Biden by myself and I just, I didn't know what the hell to talk about. (laughs) 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 The basketball coach, I just remember it being an awkward, long five minutes. I don't think he knew like that much about basketball and I know nothing about politics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you
0: win the championship. How long does a high like that last? I mean, that feeling of being the top of the college basketball world before you have to say all right everybody it's it's time to time to get back to work
1: just for me it was it was a week from monday night winning the championship to you know when i got up that next monday morning and had a team meeting and started setting the tone for the off season program uh summer program uh, our goals for next season so probably a week but then it's also something that i think in, in times where we're not practicing. We're not recruiting. We're not, uh, you know, doing, you know, coaching, you know, development or raising money for NIL or working on scheduling. Whenever we're not working, I did take the time to, you know, maybe uh, you know, play a song or that reminded me of, of being in Houston and winning it, like uh, looking up at the championship banner in the practice facility, giving myself kind of moments of appreciation in between working hard.
0: Four years ago, in my research, I saw that you had this viral moment telling the media, people better be getting this now because it's coming. You know, what's that statement say about your leadership style?
1: Well, number one, especially nowadays with social media, when you're losing, it's bad. Um, (laughs) You know, and and I was in year two, and, and there wasn't a huge difference in terms of the bottom line results, but there was a major improvement in terms of, the quality of of the organization, the talent on the court with the players, uh, the coaching staff had improved, our culture in terms of how much we cared it was, was so much better. Our preparation and maturity, just everything about us, you know, had changed except the results, but they were getting a lot narrower and our talent level was increasing. So, you know, we took a tough loss on the road and I, I knew that we were, we were getting closer and I knew I had... You know, I had the people on board and it was just a matter of of, of of time in terms of just maturing as an organization and learning how to win. So I threw that one out there mostly to galvanize the fan base, Yeah, you because, know, you know, you win the national championship, you know, uh, the most in the last 25 years of any program in the country, the fans start getting restless. So uh, <laughs> um, I threw that out there, uh, but I also believed it. Deion Sanders, Coach
0: Prime, he said the same thing after Oregon just kicked their butt. He said, you better get us now. What do you think of his, uh, his coaching uh, style and what you've observed with what he's done
1: at Colorado? Yeah, you see, um, you know, somebody there who uh, brings, uh, you know, a couple things, I think, his uh, you know, incredible amount of confidence and swagger, which uh, this is all about performance under pressure. So a coach that could provide his, his group with confidence and swagger going into the most pressure-packed moments of their life, obviously incredible value um, you know, from that standpoint. And I, I love his honesty. You know, I, I think the best thing that you could do for someone that you're coaching or someone that you're developing is be honest with them about you know, what they're good at and where they need to get better, uh, where they're hurting themselves and holding themselves back. So that's what I love about Prime.
0: Well, unlike Colorado, which has really struggled in in football, you're at UConn, and as you mentioned, you are an elite, if not the most elite, college basketball program in in the country. There's got to be a, a gigantic spotlight on you right now. I know there is. I mean, how do you how do you handle that kind of pressure?
1: Yeah, playing you know playing or coaching basketball at UConn, it's the basketball capital of the world. You know the women's program with eleven national championships and Gino Ariema, you know, one of the legendary coaches. And I replaced, uh, you know, one coach down the line, but I replaced Jim Calhoun, another Mount Rushmore of greatest college coaches of all time. You know, when this job became available to me, I'm a very driven person. I was coaching at the University of Rhode Island. I wanted to get myself to a program where I had all of the resources available you know, to me, to develop and compete at an elite level, and prove myself to be an elite coach. UConn is in stores, Connecticut. There's not uh, a whole lot here besides a world-class university, an incredible love for basketball, and, um, <laughs> and an ability to really focus because uh, stores is not South Beach. <laughs> so um, it's the perfect place to develop young people, uh, help them uh, develop and acquire new skills quickly, put together a culture that's based around constant improvement and build an incredible bond amongst the team. We, uh, this is a tough job though. You got to be a certain type of coach to coach here because you're, you're going to be held against the absolute highest standards. It's like championships or bust. Not everyone's meant to coach or work in an environment like that. And I think they earmarked me as being a, you know, a, a tough kid from Jersey that comes from a very competitive family, uh, that he would have the type of thick skin to not only survive here, but thrive.
0: I couldn't help but looking at what you have on your office walls, and you've got that famous uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena. Is that your favorite uh,
1: quote from any uh, leader? Yeah, I think so. Um, Or certainly pre-championship, no doubt. Now I think, you know, it's funny, it's like the critics, I think, you know, prior to really breaking through in in March and April, that was something I had to look at a lot because, you know, the external noise was something that, um, you know, that affected me. And um, with the big breakthrough moment in April, I could give a shit what what the outside world thinks of of decisions I'm making right now as a leader of the program because of my heart of hearts, you know, as a 50-year-old head coach we achieved the pinnacle of this sport. So, you know, now I know my way works. We feel like we got the formula and the blueprint and we have insane work ethic and drive. So I feel like that Teddy Roosevelt helped me for a long time and now maybe it helps me less because I don't even think about the critics.
0: (laughs) That's great. What's insane
1: work ethic to you? It's an 11, 11 and a half month a year you know, grind here, whether that's recruiting, um, you know, getting ahead in recruiting on younger high school prospects or recruiting a current class where you're trying to, you know, bring in um, you know, the best recruiting class in the country. It's it's obviously your season, you know, your games and, and your and your performance on game night. It's the level that you practice at, the expertise in the way that you run a practice, not only the drills and instructions, but the energy, the intensity, uh, the pace of it. I just think it's a coaching staff that while our team is in a weight room working to get stronger, uh, we're trying to become better leaders. We're trying to master the art of coaching, which includes so many different things, motivation and psychology, tactics, personal development, player development, the way that you market or brand your program, the way that you recruit. You know, my wife on days where I look tired when I'd come home, you know, my wife would kind of make fun of me. Hey, you're just a gym teacher. Why do you look so be- <laughs> why do you look so tired? And most people don't understand the intricacies and all the different parts and aspects of, of coaching mastery. How have you gotten
0: better at building branding, like the UConn brand? You talked about that being an important
1: aspect. Yeah, I think uh, we went out and hired, um, you know, a, a team to run our social media because uh, it was not up to par. It was uh, it was well below national championship standards. So uh, we went out and, and and hired a team and and uh, allowed them to kind of get uh, embedded uh, deeper in the program. And we had in November. Uh, the number one uh, most interacted with social media in all of college basketball.
0: Fantastic, and uh, I want to talk to you more about how you're leading at UConn. But first, I want to take you back. What's a story from your childhood that that shaped the kind of leader
1: you are today? Childhood, uh, it's going to be something in, involving, you know, definitely my dad, who's. of what I do as a coach is is what I learned from a Hall of Fame high school coach of a a dad. I would say the story for me is uh, we're playing Little League. Maybe I'm in fourth grade, fifth grade. My dad's waiting for me. We're going to go meet my grandmother uh, in Long Beach Island at the Jersey Shore. And my brother's already down there. My mom's already down there. I've got some family down there. My dad had me stay and play the Little League game on Friday before we, we went for the weekend. And um, I think I'm the tying run, I'm at second base. And um, uh, last inning and I get picked off second base uh, for the last out of the game. And I think like a couple of girls from my grammar school were like <laughs> riding by on their bikes in the street. And I think I might've been looking at them and got picked off second base. And you know, that, that car ride to the shore back then, you know, there was no podcasts or XM radio, so like uh, there were no cell phones to distract you. So that was like, like three hours of incredible uncomfortableness on the Jersey Turnpike, and like never letting down your guard in preparation. You know, in competition, just always being ready in sports.
0: Your dad is, you know, he is a Hall of Famer, an and amazing record, uh, 26 state championships, I think, at in, in, in a high school. What
1: would be the, the, the single most important thing he taught you about leadership? He had all these kind of like uh, woodenisms, right? And he'd use them in practice. And then he, he would always, you know, make the, the larger uh, life lesson for the boys, right? So it was like, use the backboard or dunk the ball no stylistic finger roll in in front of the rim, like use the glass or dunk the ball. So like be about substance over style. Two hands on everything. So pass the ball, catch the ball, rebound the ball, right? Like don't take anything for granted in life. You know, be quick, don't hurry. All these woodenisms. I think he would always uh, take back to larger life aspects.
0: I understand you were quite the basketball player yourself. You went to Seton Hall. You played for P.J. Carlissimo. How did that experience shape the the person and the coach that you've become?
1: Yeah, I think for me, Dave, I blew it at the college level as a player. It haunts me from time to time. As a high school player, I was a a top-flight prospect, and um, I I was a really talented player that uh, didn't apply himself in every way at the college level, and... Did not play up to my abilities. I let, you know, my my college teammates down. I let my organization down. I let the coaching staff that invested in me down as a player. I think about that a lot because I'm involved in basketball. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So, uh, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. That (laughs) that part of my life is closed. So, um, I think now, though, Dave, I overpour into my coaching. It's like I know... I could have did more, and now I'm going to make up for it in my career as a coach in terms of just pouring everything that I have into that. And, uh, you know, I, I give all of my energy into this, my leadership, my coaching, UConn basketball, and into my family. And then I don't have a whole lot of time for much else. Dan, when did you have that light bulb
0: moment where you said, you know, I want to be a coach? Oof, I would probably say Allen Iverson. You
1: know, he scored 39 on me. Uh <laughs> 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 maybe my senior year, I think I got off to a good start, maybe averaging like 15, maybe 16 points a game, which uh, in the Big East back then, that was right in line with somebody that you know, was a potential NBA player. And then I remember playing that game in Washington, D.C. Um, he dropped 39 on me, and it was uh, not much I could do. But then I also knew I would be a coach when I got to college and I was finishing my college coaches' their sentences in practice when they were instructing us. You know, I was that well, would you get coached the level that my dad did with me and my brother, not only as children, but eventually as players for him? It's the family business. You know, if you were going to break down your coaching philosophy in, into its simplest form, what would it be? Really, it's all about development, personal development, you know, skill development, better people, smarter people, are going to make better decisions. Uh, basketball, it's like all about making quick decisions. And, you know, do I shoot? Do I pass? Do I cut? You know, do I switch? On the, you know, like it, it's all these quick decisions that require high levels of skill. So, uh, you know, skill and, and, you know, developing, you know, sharper, clearer thinkers.
0: What's a one-on-one coaching session with you like? You know, when, when you take one player aside and you work with them for a specific amount of time, what's it like? What do you try to do?
1: How we try to work uh, individually, you know, I'll try to meet with, you know, with each kind of member of the team, I'd say maybe once a week, once every 10 days. With that individual, the personal touch, the relationship building, asking about the family, uh, you know, asking about, you know, how he's doing, you know, as a, as a human being on a college campus. And then touching on, you know how the basketball piece is going, and, and and what more the organization needs from them, and and then I think from a team standpoint, the secret sauce for us is how hard we practice and how intense the environment is. Uh, we, we try to make our our practice sessions chaotic. There's no fouls called. There's no water breaks. Um, It is the most intense and the fastest paced thing and the most stressful experience that our players will go through. So I think when they show up on game night, the secret sauce is game night feels a little bit slower and a little bit more comfortable, uh, which I think is what I learned from my dad. As a
0: leader, you know, culture is so important in, in any organization. Have you articulated the cultural behaviors that you want for the UConn team so that everybody knows them? And, and what are the major drivers of your culture and, and how do you as a leader reinforce it?
1: Yeah, so work ethic. You know, I think you know, we have this, uh, you know, this, this blue collar mentality uh, in, in the program we I recruit coaches to work for me that have incredible passion for the game. They have to love being a part of of this tribe and and want to invest absolutely everything they have uh, into their obsession or, or which is basketball for all of us our passion. So like they have to love it as much as I love it or else I cannot bring them in here because when the person that cares too much meets the person that doesn't care enough, You know, things can tend to get very, very bumpy. You know, so we're we're based on just like the work ethic has got to be there. It's got to meet mine. I mean, I I don't have a lot of hobbies. (laughs) You know, I I don't have a lot of balance. It's like, you know, I love basketball. I love my, in a good way, I love the cult that I'm a part of. uh, And then I love my family. Um, In terms of behaviors and mindsets, like there's no blaming here. There's no complaining. There's no suggesting our mindset, um, you know, in a way we want to be able to, you know, have have the, the best athletes in college basketball, you know, that can execute like uh, at the precision of a, of a Navy SEAL team.
2: Have you ever wondered what David is thinking as he interviews our guests each week? Or have you been interested in hearing David's take on some of the questions that he asks his guests? Well, I do, and I know a lot of you do too. My name is Kula Callahan, and together with David, I host the Three More Questions podcast that airs every Monday. These episodes are just about 15 minutes, and in them, I ask David three questions that dive deeper into the themes of his episode with his guests. David shares incredible insights and stories from his career-leading Yum! Brands, and all of his answers are super practical and inspiring, like this great insight David shared in one of our most recent Three More Questions episodes.
0: But I think what a leader has to recognize is if they have that decision, it's their job to make it. They've got to make those tough calls because their people are looking for them to do it when leaders don't make the tough decisions, they don't make the tough calls, things get stalled, things slow down, and the urgency that you want to have in your organization dissipates. And so you cannot be a leader that shoves the tough things aside. You have to take those tough decisions on, make a decision after you've done the proper analysis, done your homework, and then move on and execute that decision to the best of your ability until you learn something that says maybe you'd need to change course.
2: Get the Three More Questions podcast in your feed each Monday and dive even deeper into the episodes you know and love. Just subscribe to How Leaders Lead wherever you get your
0: podcasts. One of the things that you said was no suggesting.
1: You know, what goes into that thinking? Yeah, I mean, most of these guys are, you know, aren't that good yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know if, if I was an NBA coach and, and um, you know, I was coaching maybe, a, you know, a veteran that had won a lot and had accomplished everything and, and played the right way and was all about winning, not a stats guy, but an actual winning player, yeah, I would definitely be interested in, hey, what did you see? But most of the players I'm coaching, <laughs> you know, they're they're just not at, at that point. And maybe the first time that they've ever been told no or you're wrong or the first time that they've really been coached hard is when they get to me. Because most of their high school coaches, most of their AAU coaches are afraid that they're going to transfer out of their schools so they're afraid to coach them. Or their parents are just acting like fans instead of parents. Um, you know, so for me... A big part of my job is to push them to points that they can't get themselves. And, and a lot of that type of work is, uh, you know, I've got to challenge them and I've got to push them. But they know I love them. I invest the time in them. So they let me do my job.
0: How hard is it for you, or is it hard for you at all, to really have an, an emotional distance from your players, to be, the, you know, to be the tough guy when you
1: have to be? For me, I, I understand... Um, you know, the two different roles I've got to play for them. You know, in in the preparation and in the practices, I've got to push for game-like reps so that on game night, they can execute. On game night, I go to boxing trainer in the corner with the fighter, pumping them up, building up their confidence. So you've got this practice persona where you push for the preparation. And then on game night, you become that person that's trying to convince them uh, throughout the game that they can do anything. Uh, any anger you see on game night for me is always at the referees.
0: You know, let's say you're a player on your team, and you go, you're go, you a good shooter, but you go into a slump. And I'm sure that's happened to you many times with some great shooters you have. How do you build confidence in people when there's a right for maybe them to start doubting themselves?
1: You keep running plays for them. You keep putting together highlight edits of their career hitting their biggest shots to their favorite songs. And you make sure you're getting it to them a the day before a game, two days before a game, that constant communication and looking them in the eyes and, uh, you know, and, and tell them that they're the, the best shooter in the country. You know, your, your team in
0: 2023 was considered one of the most dominant teams in the history of March Madness. And it takes some serious effort to assemble a team like that, you know, how do you lead on the recruiting front? I mean, because you've got to be a hell of a recruiter to get the talent that you get to go to go to Yukon. To it's just a great school, but you said it's not Miami Beach. Yeah.
1: well, I, I think number one, it's, it starts with a, a locker room or an office space that's going to vibe. Um, that's just that's got a good mixture of personalities. We had some introverts, we had some some extroverts. Uh, you know we had some some fire, we had some ice but we all had um, really good people with good pedigree. And we were very, very honest uh, in the recruiting process about the roles that we needed filled. So there was no one in the locker room that was coerced or co- convinced to come here with a false idea of what was gonna be asked of them in the program and what their role uh, would be. So I-, I learned a lot through, through failure about uh, roster architecture, both personalities skill sets and role identification. Can you tell us a story from one of those learnings? I would say we had a, we had a player, uh, a young man from California. Not many Californians come to Storrs, Connecticut to, <laughs> to play for the Huskies. But we had a kid named Joey Calcaterra, who's from San Diego, who could have gone to other uh, schools uh, kind of somewhere near our level of college basketball um, that were offering him a chance to start and play way more minutes. And he got on his visit with us at UConn, and um, you know, I said, Joey, listen, you may not get on the court. Uh, you may be able to fight and get yourself 10 or 12 minutes a game at UConn. The easier road is these places that are offering you a starting spot. Uh, but if you come here and earn yourself 10 minutes a game, you may be the difference between uh, not playing in the NCAA tournament and winning the national championship. Joey did the hard thing. He came to UConn. He was an absolute flamethrower off the bench for us. And uh, I nicknamed him Joey California, and he sold a bunch of NIL Merck. So um, it worked out great for everybody.
0: (laughs) Speaking of NIL, what kind of impact has has NIL and the Transfer Portal had on your program specifically?
1: Yeah, I think um, our approach has been to be proactive with talking about and talking to players in your program um, when you feel the discontent building. I think in the past during the season, uh, we've kind of avoided speaking openly to our players about decisions like those. Whereas I think in 2023, we're talking to our team about staying the course. Don't talk to people close to you about, about transferring. Where in the past, we would almost just kind of wait till the season's over. And it was like the elephant in the room. Uh, NIL, um, you know, listen, I, I say to my players, I expect more from you guys than any college basketball players ever given because you guys are getting things that college basketball players, some of the greatest who have ever played the sport that have paved the road for you, were barely got meal money.
0: You know, I had a great opportunity to go to Encinito, California. I, I spent like a morning with John Wooden. I remember him telling me that the first time he got an extra tall player, you know, which is how he described a seven footer. He said he'd never coached him before. So he went and met with all these uh, coaches and players who were seven foot tall or coached people. Uh, how do you sharpen your axe? I mean, how do you go about getting better and better each year as a coach?
1: You know, for me, it's it's just, it's, it's film study. It's being real structured, I think, with, your your schedule i think in the, in the morning for me it's like from 6 to 8 o'clock i think it's like it, it's exercise it's 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 spiritual it's mindfulness it's it's getting myself kind of primed for the day and um you know i get into the office and i spend my first couple hours just you know studying offense studying defense watching the nba watching european professional basketball watching division 3 women's team in wisconsin looking for A zone play versus an out under defense. I think it's, it's just putting in the time, trying to study and learn. You
0: talked about your assistant coaches, and I know one of your goals is to, is to help them all become head
1: coaches. How do you get them ready for that? I think, um, by modeling, I think, I think I do a great job of, of of modeling the habits, the behaviors, the energy level, the work ethic, I guess how, how seriously I take, uh, to trying to, uh, to get as close to mastery of the different aspects of coaching and how that's an everyday journey and something that you'll never master. And then I think, uh, you know, pushing them, you know, I, I, I think, uh, not allowing them to settle, uh, you know, getting them to promote themselves as well, which is something that a lot of them are uncomfortable with.
0: We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Dan Hurley in just a moment. You know, when you reach a milestone of success, like winning a national championship, it can be easy to rest on your laurels. But the ability to fight complacency is a quality I see a lot in great leaders, including NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. In our episode of How Leaders Lead, Roger talks about the importance of calling out that kind of complacency when you see it. One of the big challenges I had when I became commissioner is the league was so successful that when you start talking about, well, we should do this, we should do that,
2: we should focus on this, a lot of people reacted as saying, why? We're already successful. And my answer to that is because we can get better. And
0: it's sometimes harder to drive change in a successful organization for that reason, that people are somewhat resistant to change. And why take the risk? We're already at a great level. My view is the NFL has got so much more potential. And... We can grasp that, and we can achieve that. If we continue to be smart about the decisions we make, we continue to act like we're number two and continue to find new ways of doing things. Go back and listen to my entire conversation with Roger Goodell, episode 99, here on How Leaders Lead. You push your your guys hard, your assistants hard, your team members hard. I've also heard you talk a little bit about your approach when the lights are on. I mean,
1: what's different on game day for you? You know, a, g- a good part of the season, you know, Dave, it fluctuates between some level of suffering and uh, and, and, and different levels of relief. Um, you know, with some joy mixed in there after a huge road win or what have you. So generally, uh, it fluctuates between... <laughs> <laughs> between suffering and, and, and relief and, until you get to March. And then I think when, when March hits, um, you know, and it's conference tournament, it's NCAA tournament, now you almost start really going for it.
0: You know, you've mentioned this word that I find very interesting a few times in this podcast, mastery. Tell me about your pursuit of mastery
1: and, and why you talk about that so much. I just think when, when you're a coach, uh, that is no longer at that point that you should get out um, then you're no longer uh, giving your, your players and, and the people that work for you everything that they deserve so if like if every single day on this job if you're not pushing yourself to learn uh, better ways of recruiting presentations or branding your program or your recruiting pitch or your, your tactics versus man defense or a new drill that you could develop so that you could develop better passers and the psychology of, of leadership. And, and like once those things don't, don't excite you and, and have you almost feeling uh, insecure or not measuring up, like once you're not fearful that you're not good enough as a coach anymore, I think it's time to get out.
0: I'll tell you, uh, Dan, this has been so much fun, and I, I want to have a little bit more with you here before I let you go. I have a lightning round of questions. Are you ready for this? <laughs> <I'm> ready. <laughs> All right. What's one word others would use to best describe you? Complex. What would you say is the one word that best describes you?
1: Complex. Who would play you in a movie? I was told years ago Billy Bob Thornton, but that's because I curse a lot, and the bad Santa Billy Bob.
0: If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be? Jose Mourinho. As a coach, what's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Breaking game day superstitions.
0: Your number one game day superstition. It all starts with the underwear.
1: Dragons, wolves, or um, sharks.
0: (laughs) What's the first word or phrase that comes to mind when I say George Brett? (laughs) Idol. And... How about when I say Jersey City? Dogs. John Wooden.
1: The Goat, Tist. Bob Knight. Mount Rushmore Goats. Dean Smith. Mount Rushmore Goats. Jim Calhoun. Mount Rushmore Goats.
0: (laughs) What's something about being a coach most people will never appreciate?
1: The responsibility.
0: Who's your go-to Peloton instructor?
1: Jess King. What are a couple of your required reads for your players? books? The Alchemist, uh, you know, I I love for them. And then I would say uh, How Champions Think by Dr. Bob Bertelli.
0: What's something about you few people would know?
1: Really spiritual. That's
0: the end of the lightning round. Great job. Uh, And I I have just a few more questions. I'll let you go. Okay. Mm. One of the guys I work for, Tim Sherry, wrote this great book, Secret Society of Success. And you gave it to your staff. Uh, what was it about that book that you thought was so good?
1: I just think what makes people successful, uh, the secrets are out there. You know, they're really smart people, you know, like Tim and yourself. They write books and podcasts. You know, so the habits, the mindsets, the behaviors, uh, the things you could do to help you become a more successful person. That's going to raise your self-esteem and raise your confidence and 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 help lead you to a, a happier, more fulfilling life. Like the information's out there. Read it, learn it, apply it.
0: You know, as you think about this o- upcoming season, Dan, what needs to happen before you would say it's a success?
1: Yeah, I just feel like we got, I think, um, you know, two things. Got the most out of the team. Um, you'll reach our absolute potential in terms of, uh, winning as often as we should based on, you know, how good we are and that, um, you know, that enough of the individuals have increased their value by the way we performed.
0: What would be your unfinished business? Do you still feel like you have something to prove? I mean, you obviously got the monkey off your back. You got that national championship, but how do you
1: look at the future? I think like anyone else that pushes themselves hard, uh, you know, the goalposts always move. So for me, I think you know, I always dreamed of winning a national championship. Uh you know, now you know, now you you dream of becoming a Hall of Fame coach. So um you know, I just think that uh, the goalposts always move and you always want the next thing. What would you be doing if you weren't coaching, Dan? I'm curious. You know what? I, I had an interest in um in, in maybe being a lawyer. I, I think law always interests me. <laughs> <laughs> that's something about you. A few people would know, I'm sure. <laughs> no, with my co- with my college grades, I, I don't. I don't think I would have gotten into many law schools. So <laughs> it's a good thing I I paid attention to pops. <laughs> uh
0: last question here. What's the best piece of advice you can give to aspiring leaders?
1: You know, work at it. It's also it's it's got to be in your heart. You know, you you've got to be somebody that's like like energized by being a leader. Um, and it also, like, leadership does get more comfortable. Um, the comfort level of speaking and and inspiring the group in a meeting setting or right before competition or um, you just, you you get better at all aspects of, of leading and coaching if you keep working at it.
0: You know, just listening to you, Dan, I mean, you were, you're all over it. You're having a blast. You're working your ass off. There's no question about that. But when you think about it, you know, what have you had to to give up to get to where you are? Is there anything you've had to give
1: up to to really achieve the kind of success you have? Yeah, I, w- I would say you know, probably some friendships. Um, you know, some friendships I've probably lost uh, along the way. You know, maybe um, you know hobby. You know, <laughs> you know maybe like a golf or, or or some type of hobby that that I guess people like, but. You know, I, the, the two things that I give all my time to or the or two things that I just, I, I love so incredibly, which is, uh, you know, I, I love basketball and I love the the cult that I'm a part of at UConn and, and my wife, Andrea, and my kids, like that's where I want all my time to go and my family.
0: Dan, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this podcast and sharing your insights. Uh, Really appreciate you, and I I wish you all the best this year and hope you get another national championship. You know, I've been a UConn fan for quite a while. I I lived in uh, Wilton, Connecticut when I was with Pepsi, so I got a little bit of heart for you guys, so keep it
1: going. Yes, you know what the winters are like here. uh, (laughs) They make you tough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell one thing for sure. You are not a wimp, okay? (laughs) You you are a tough guy. I I don't think I could have played for you. Of course, I couldn't have played for too many people anyway. (laughs) It's
1: all good. It's all good. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: Well, no doubt about it, Dan Hurley is one passionate guy. It's great to see how his intensity and his love for what he does shines through in every word he says. And that passion really drives him day in and day out. Yeah, sure, he passed in the glory of winning that NCAA championship. But you know what? He only took a week to do it. Then it was back to work, watching film, recruiting, and thinking about how he's going to run those intense practices. And you know, because he really models that passion and drive in his own life, he's able to get the same kind of intensity from his coaching staff and his players. They buy in and believe more because they can see that Dan walks the talk. He's always pushing himself to do better, to learn more, and Dan reminds us there's no substitute for that kind of work ethic. It's the hallmark of great leaders in every walk of life. No matter what the task is, they roll up their sleeves and dive in. They put in the hours to stay sharp. Sure, they celebrate their success, but then they look to that next big goal and start pushing themselves to reach it. Now, as you probably know, this is the point in the podcast where I offer a bit of coaching to help you apply this big idea to your week. I'm tempted to tell you to go out and just buy a pair of lucky underwear. It seems to be working great for Dan. But as fun as those game day superstitions are, you and I both know that his success has way more to do with his incredible work ethic and drive. So with that in mind, I want you to look at one place in your life that could use a little more of that kind of intensity. Ask yourself, Where have you gotten a little complacent? And what would it look like to push yourself in that area? That relentless drive to stay sharp has served Dan well in his career. And I know it will be a difference maker for you too. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders keep pushing themselves. And coming up next on how leaders lead is Admiral Mike Mullen. This is a guy who keeps pushing himself. And he was the 17th chairman of the joint chiefs of staff
2: all leaders have to have people around them who will close the door and say you got this exactly wrong Uh, and i was blessed to have a guy named john kirby uh, who was my public affairs officer for uh for 10 years and is now on the national security council but when he was in uniform with me he's the one that would close the door and say you got that completely wrong, and I expected that. That's never easy medicine to take, uh, but it was really important medicine to have.
0: So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader that you can be.